I, I think telemedicine is important in and of itself, but I think the bigger issue for telemedicine is that it 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 broke through that sound barrier. It broke through the idea that all care will be delivered through a visit where you come into the space that is developed by the by the healthcare organization. And now from San Francisco and the UCSF Rosenman Institute, the Health Technology Podcast with your host, Christine Winotto. Could digitization add another person in your room? Will the newest technologies be created by small businesses or by hospitals? And most importantly, will the new digital age in healthcare leave people behind? These are some big questions. So today I talked with Dr. Bob Walker to get some answers. Dr. Walker is a professor and the chair of Department of Medicine right here at UCSF. He's written six books, including one called The Digital Doctor, which was a New York Times science bestseller. He also coined the term hospitalist in 1996 and is considered the father of this fast-growing specialty. I won't even start to talk about the awards he's received because we would be here too long. In other words, he's the one with the answers, but he also has some questions. Here's our conversation. Well, thank you, Dr. Walker, for joining me this morning. It's a great pleasure, Christine. Thank you. And so we've been following you a lot on your Twitter uh, during this COVID time, especially. But before we dive into a lot of the COVID challenges that we face, I thought it would be good for our listeners to hear about your background. I thought your your path to become a clinician is quite different from what I think most people usually did. You have poly size background. I thought that was interesting. Yeah, I, I, you know, I grew up in the Watergate era, and I became a politics junkie. And uh, when I went to college, I kind of des- had decided I wanted to be a doctor. Neither of my parents went to college, so I didn't really know what the path was about. Uh, but I also loved politics and history, and I decided to major in political science, and but also be pre med. And I really thought it would be my avocation. I would just be a doctor, and then I would be someone interested in the way. People organize themselves and how money flowed and policy and politics. And um, I really didn't imagine that there might be a career where I would weave all of that together. And that's kind of the way my career has gone. I've been a been a clinician, a teacher, an administrator and leader in healthcare, uh, but also someone who has studied what I think of as the kind of emerging issues that impact the way we take care of patients. And I seem to change it, that issue about every five to seven years. I don't know if I get bored or a new issue comes up, but that has led me to studying the role of activism in healthcare. It's led me to studying the organization of hospital care. I coined the term hospitalist and helped kind of catalyze what became the fastest growing specialty in American history. I got very interested in safety, patient safety and quality for a long time. About seven or eight years ago, I got very interested in the digital transformation of healthcare and then for the last two years, it's been all COVID all the time. And as I think of the theme, it really is big, complex, multidimensional issues where I'm not an expert in any of those things, but but there is actually a role of someone who is a good synthesizer and good at looking around corners 
and who then understands that you've got to bring together a different, a lot of different kinds of people and different kinds of expertise in order to understand it and articulate it and communicate it to people. And that's sort of what I've been doing constantly with COVID for the last two years, but sort of what I've done for these other fields. And it's been an immensely gratifying way of spending a career. It's kind of interesting. Um, I think COVID caught everybody by surprise, at least me. Um, and also people have been talking about it in a movie that this pandemic, uh, so in a way it should not be surprising that it happened. Um, but with all the experience that you had and for the last two years on COVID, how do you see COVID change how we think of healthcare delivery? Well, I think it, it's, it's catalyzed certain important changes that would have happened anyway, but would have happened more slowly. So in the technology field, obviously telemedicine is the, is the sort of reflexive answer. It, it sort of moved us to a deeper understanding that, um, that there are ways of interacting with patients that don't involve them coming into our space and sitting in the waiting room and reading Reader's Digest and then having a 15-minute visit with a doctor. I, I think telemedicine is important in and of itself, but I think the bigger issue for telemedicine is that it, 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 it broke through that sound barrier. It broke through the idea that all care will be delivered through a visit where you come into the space that is developed by the, by the healthcare organization. Uh, if all telemedicine turns out to be is just a different way of doing that 15-minute visit, I don't think it'll be all that consequential. I think what it really did is open up all of our minds to new ways of delivering healthcare, new ways of collecting data, new ways of connecting with patients that I think opens up a lot of exciting transformation. I think another thing that changed during COVID, this isn't all that sexy, but to me is really quite important, is the emergence of dashboards and data visualization. Um, you know, one of the things that's been so painful about the first 10 years of digital transformation in healthcare, and it's why doctors are so unhappy with their computers, is we spend an immense amount of time inputting information into our digital system, and we get virtually nothing useful out of it other than getting rid of doctor's handwriting, which is useful. But uh, it'd be like if you had a baby and you spent all your time you know, feeding and, and, and changing the baby and the baby never smiled at you. Eventually, you'd be unhappy with the baby. And so I think this was the first time where, as a system, we said, we have all this digital data sloshing through the tubes. Let's make sense of it. And, and make sense of it is not sending someone an Excel spreadsheet. It is presenting it to them just in time, beautifully visualized, uh, with mechanisms for them to answer questions that are really important. And I think now that we've seen what that looks like with COVID, I think we'll never go back again. I want that as a doctor taking care of a patient. I want that as a department leader trying to understand our clinical practice. So I think that's an important evolution in healthcare digitization is, is moving from collecting a lot of data to actually using it and making sense of it and providing it to people in actionable form. I think that moved forward. The issue of healthcare disparities became a big issue in COVID, and I think it went higher up on the radar screen uh, with COVID. But it's almost, uh, it'd be amusing if it wasn't so sad. It was like people discovered that there were disparities. It's like the scene in Casablanca. <laughs> We've known about massive disparities forever you know, the, the outcomes of patients with cancer or, you know, how people get their pain treated or virtually everything is massively different, as are the outcomes depending on your wealth and your, you know, socioeconomic status and your race and your gender. 
And so I think COVID exposed that, but it's certainly not a new issue. I think that we'll move forward with it better now that it's been exposed and made uh, made much more transparent. I think for the rest of it, I think we'll have to see. You know, it's sort of easy to say, well, it's, I mean, COVID made clear the importance of science and the importance of foundational science. You couldn't have snapped your fingers and come up with the vaccines if, unless you'd done 30 or 40 or 50 years of foundational research that led to an understanding of mRNA. So I think it will help elevate the role of science and translational science and foundational science. What it does to the public health system, I think, remains to be seen. You know, everybody says we need to invest more in public health. We need a better infrastructure. Absolutely all true. The problem, of course, is as COVID recedes, and I hope it does recede, it's very easy to move on to the next thing. And, and you know, it's just hard to focus on prevention. It's the kind of thing you focus on, you know, when you've done everything else that's a little more in your face and you have money and time left over. But you never have money and time left over. And so... I think we have to capitalize in this moment to build the infrastructure that we need, not only for the next pandemic, but for just public health in general. And hopefully that'll happen, but I'm a little bit more concerned about the staying power there. Yeah, and good, good. So touching on a bit on the, the health disparity and also the public health, um, especially in the prevention, I think we are so used to a, in a instant gratification to fix something. I think that's what healthcare is all about. You go see a doctor because you're sick, but preventing is always getting the challenge about like, what is the ROI? It's so hard to measure. Even for a clinical evidence, it's harder to get that data. So yeah. how can we change that? Because as a doctor, you know, it pays, but then you do need the numbers, the data to back it up and it takes a long time to get that data. Yeah, I, I mean, a lot of that's dependent on the payment system changing. And I'm skeptical about that because, you know, I'm old enough to remember, you know, people saying, well, fee-for-service provides all the wrong incentives. It just provides incentives to do more stuff and see, mm -hmm. have more visits and do more surgeries and do more MRIs. It's and look at how much money we're spending on healthcare. It's all unsustainable. I would believe that if I hadn't been hearing that for 25 years. And so, when when people have been saying something is unsustainable and it's gone on for another quarter century, <laughs> clearly they were wrong. <laughs> and, um, and it's been sustainable. You know, people were saying that the the fee for service payment system is bankrupting the country, and it's unsustainable when we were spending 10% of our GDP on healthcare. We now spend 18%. <laughs> so the, there are a lot of people and parties, you know, eating at the trough of the current healthcare system and who've done very, done very well under the current model and will fight. And, you know, that's politics 101. It's, it's sort <laughs> of understandable that they will fight uh, changes in the model that make it harder for them to make a living. Uh, right. And, and, and so, you know, you have to sort of ask the question, is the energy and uh, are the forces on the other side to switch to value-based payment and to switch to a payment system that really does incentivize prevention? Are those strong enough to overcome the forces of stasis and the status quo? I'm not sure. I, I, mm -hmm. I you know, I haven't seen the evidence yet that they are. Mm -hmm. um, we've done a lot of little bit of experiments in value-based payment here and there. But certainly, if you look at a place like UCSF, you know, which I, I find an exceptionally moral and ethical institution, you know, I think we really want to do the right thing. Mm 
<laughs> but if you said tomorrow we're going to empty out the hospital, we're going to, you know, we figured out well, there's a now magic pill for prevention. So nobody's going to get sick. Nobody's going to need to transplant. Nobody's going to need to CAT scan. I think there'll be many of us in, you know, as our as human beings that would say, fantastic, we have a healthier population. But then the, the you know, those of us who work here would say, we're going to be out of business by next Monday. You know, our business is keeping the hospital full. And that doesn't mean, I think people sometimes from the outside, you know, uh, caricaturize this and say, oh, so you have an incentive to have sick people. So you like having sick people and you don't do anything to prevent illness. It's not that. But it's that if we're going to spend, you know, a lot of money and time on a new program, it's probably going to be a new cardiac surgery program or a new mm -hmm. liver transplant program or, or affiliating with some other hospital in the community so that they're really sick people come here and we help them do other things rather than you know, trying to find $10 million or $50 million to invent in a big, invest in a big prevention program where there's absolutely no ROI. So <laughs> we're all dependent on the payment system changing in ways that I'm a little skeptical uh, is going to happen anytime soon. I mean, definitely we hear a lot of the value-based care being is used a lot, especially for the last two years. I think somehow during the COVID, that's kind of a lot of it. Maybe the the direction that we're heading to address a lot of the health disparity. Um, but I think at the same time, I can see, um, I like what you're saying, like it's been going on for 25 years, it's still here. And I yeah. think there's also a piece when you talk about, about how much we spend on healthcare uh, percentage of GDP compared to other developed countries. We all actually, what we, we didn't count in the number of other countries is all, a lot of the subsidy that the, the state or the governments provide to the population, I think, the social services. I mean, yeah, and, but, you know, I've, I, I did a sabbatical in the UK uh, a while back and I'm very familiar with that system. Uh, there are many things about a prepaid government-funded healthcare system that are very attractive. And, you know, people's access to basic and primary care and getting their blood pressure treated and their cholesterol treated, I think, frankly, is better than here. Uh, you know, if you're wealthy here and you have really good insurance, it's, you, you, you can sort it out. But if you don't, then it's, I think, much harder here than in the UK. That said, there is a level of service and amenities that I think Americans would not tolerate. And the innovation that I see in the American system is something that is very hard to match in the UK, where most of the health system is basically a government-run bureaucracy. Um, and so there, you know, we can sort of envy the fact that they're spending 13% of their GDP on healthcare, not 18%, and the extra money that that creates for other things. Uh, but I, you can't snap, cultures of countries are very different. You can't snap your fingers and just make it happen. And I think there are lessons there, as there are for many other countries, about how we should be emphasizing prevention more than we do. And we need to figure out a payment system that creates the right incentives to keep people healthy. But we also have to say, you know, people in the United States are used to, if their knee is really painful and they can't play tennis, they want their knee replaced. And they want their cataracts fixed and they want their heart transplant if that's what they need. And they want to have that happen, you know, and they want their MRI scan for their terrible back pain this week, not in a month. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, and they're not going to give up those things very easily. So it's a really, it's a pretty tough problem to solve.
Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that. It's a culture, it's a hard thing to change and people, what they're used to is something that is not easily changed. I, I mean, I remember I used to work in, in London and because I work, I have a private insurance. And even that as a private insurance, I remember uh, for my physical exam, they gave me a rope, like a pink rope, like a rope that is like a bath rope. Mm-hmm. And my first, I had experience here in the US before I work in London. And I thought like, Ooh, where is this pink rope has been worn by other people? <laughs> and of course, when I talked to all my European friends, like, yeah, that's, you know, it's more cost efficient. Uh, it's, it's, uh, more environmentally friendly, but I kind of like, I'm not so sure if I want right. to wear this, uh, pink rope that somebody else was somewhere down there. <laughs> um, again, that's, uh, even though, you know, it's, uh, everything else you think is better. Uh, for the environment, but you felt like, oh, I want the same standards that yeah. you have. But, but, you know, and, and their their outcomes are as good as ours, and in many cases, better. Mm-hmm. And I think that really does owe to the fact that if you look across a population and you said, where should we be putting more of our emphasis? You would say, you know, you're going to get more bang for the buck really making sure people have excellent access to very good preventive care and primary care and a strong public health system and a system that syncs up the medical system with the behavioral health and 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 uh, nursing homes and all of the parts of it that are not terribly sexy but are you know that they are the greater determinants of ultimately the aggregate outcomes of a population than the fact that we can do this sort of cutting edge you know, surgery or transplants or various things. Uh, And yet, you know, we kind of move the ball down the field in terms of some of the technological advances and and some of the clinical advances by virtue of having the money to invest in those things. And as I say, I think Americans, particularly Americans of means, are addicted to having that kind of access to cutting edge. You know, Mm -hmm. a new therapy for cancer comes out and it's going to cost 100000 bucks a year and may improve your life expectancy for six months. Uh, is that a reasonable thing to spend money on? If I had cancer, I'd want it. Uh, but at a societal level, you probably would save more lives and more life years by taking that money and spending it on primary care. In the UK, they have a mechanism to make those trade-offs and make that decision. In the US, there's basically no mechanism to do that. Once we have a therapy, it sort of doesn't matter how expensive it is. If it will improve life or life expectancy, even by a little bit, you know, we want it and mm-hmm. therefore make it available. And once we make it available to the well-to-do, we have this, une- with, with, uh, there was a health policy uh, writer who wrote about 20 years in the New England Journal that America has this sort of strange set of values that are a combination of, of, of entrepreneurialism and uh, egalitarianism. And I thought it was very thoughtful because it said the entrepreneurial side says we're going to do the latest, greatest thing. And if it's a little bit better, we'll figure out a way of funding it and we'll make it available to people that have a lot of money or have health insurance. But then there's this egalitarian thing that kicks in that says if we're doing it for those people, we've got to make it available for everybody. And we do it in strange ways like, you know, for poor people on Medicaid, we will, you know, we will pay for transplants and some of the latest stuff. But the cost, therefore, is we don't have enough money to make sure that they have access to primary care or to get their diabetes treated. And that has down, because those things are a little quieter, it's easier to sort of 
sort of, you know, we just don't have access there. Um, and and it's, it's not quite as transparent to people looking in from the outside. But the consequences are that you're not doing things that really would, on average, improve life and life expectancy more than some of the things we do spend money on at the high end. It's just a very hard circle. You know, we're, we're kind of stuck right. in that cycle and it's very hard to get out of it. This podcast is sponsored by Brown Rutnick's Global Life Sciences Group, a team of legal professionals that help life science companies, lenders, and investors around the world turn good science into good business. Learn more at brownrudnick.com. This podcast is also sponsored by Canon Quality Group. Canon Quality Group has been helping med tech startups set up quality management systems for over 10 years. If you're unsure when to get started with quality management in your startup, turn to the experts at canonqualitygroup.com. We'll definitely see a lot more technology company who's trying to address the access to the primary care doctor. And But before we jumped into there, I want to uh, kind of go back to a little bit about what you mentioned about the health equity and public health. Uh, as an organization at UCSF, what can we do to, you know, this problem is going to be here. You know, we don't want people to forget and we care about uh, the quality of life of our patient population. Yeah, I've been very impressed by what we have done. There, there's a model there that I've seen play out in safety and in quality that I think we're now applying to equity, which is to say, first thing you have to do is value it. You have to understand that it's important. You have to understand that we're not doing as well as we should do. And then the second thing you have to do is figure out how to measure it. And that's not trivial. I mean, it's 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 because there are a lot of confounders that you've got to dissect out. If you say that, you know, one population is not being treated as well as another, you've got to really kind of understand what goes into that and how to measure it effectively. And then you have to build competencies. And, you know, we now have people at our health system whose job is to improve health equity. That's, you know, and their job is to keep us honest, to make sure that they're pointing out areas where there seem to be equity problems. The data shows that or there's some other measures that they have that show that. And then we need to build sort of the internal competencies about how do you fix that? You know, there's a skill set there. There's a, uh, um, uh, you might need new digital systems. You might need new providers. You might need new ways of uh, educating, you know, doctors and nurses. So, uh, and then you need to demonstrate you're making improvements and, and, and constantly iterate. And that's not all that different than the way we approach the patient safety movement or the quality movement. I think, uh, equity has a slightly different dimension, which is, you know, it, patients say, if we commit medical mistakes in the hospital, probably, you know, 99.9% of the solutions are going to be changed in the way we deliver hospital care. If we find equity problems, equity issues, sometimes the solution is not going to be in our world. It's going to be around the patient's situation at home or schools or criminal justice system. And there, I think it gets, you know, when they're, they're, they're sort of upstream predictors, what is our role? And the answer is often to partner with other organizations that are in those spaces to make sure that everything's being done that can be done. Where I get a little worried is periodically I'll hear that, you know, a hospital should get involved in trying to improve the public schools or should get involved in trying to build housing. And my answer to that, which is a little flip, is like, we're not even all that good at providing health care. You know, <laughs> there's plenty that we need to work on in, on in our lane. 
before we go out into these other areas and, and, and do something we really know nothing about. So the issues there are understanding, deeply understanding the predictors and the, the, the inputs into equity problems. When we can fix things internally, we should. But in many cases, it will be that we, you know, we don't own the space very well, but we need to partner with those that do. And so having uh, uh, mentioned all those things, what technology innovation do you think is needed or that can help address those challenges? I think on equity, you know, part of the technology innovation is something we've already done, we just haven't used very well, which is we now collect a massive amount of digital data on everybody. And so we have the ability to report out not only, you know, how we are doing in general with treating our patients for high blood pressure or their diabetes, but we can slice that by, you know, by different socioeconomic groups or by racial and ethnic, uh, on racial and ethnic lines. And then figure out, you know, you have to adjust for a bunch of stuff, but figure out, wow, you know, we are not treating uh, the outcomes of black patients with diabetes are not as good as the outcomes of white patients. Um, and then we've got to dive deeply into that. And those are sometimes uncomfortable conversations. So we have to create spaces where we can have those conversations and open and honestly and try and understand. And then say, if part of the problem is the patients aren't taking their medicines, I don't know for sure that that's an issue here, but then figure out like why, why is that going on and what can we do to make that better? And maybe we're not educating patients in the way that we need to or making the medications as, as accessible or maybe it's the cost and is there something we can do about that? So I think there's a lot there that can be done. I think the issue going forward, a lot of it is going to be the digital transformation of medicine. And people have argued that the digital transformation of medicine may actually worsen equity because there's obviously a digital divide and do poor people have access to wireless and have an iPhone and all that kind of good stuff. That's obviously a risk. We've got to mm -hmm. pay a lot of attention to that. On the other hand, one of the things that digital does in every industry that I know of is it democratizes things and often makes access to services more generally available and less expensively available because digital's unique ability to scale. Right. You know, Once you've built it, building the, you know, 10 trillionth version of it comes usually at very little incremental cost. So it seems to me that the likeliest outcome, if we do this right, is that the digitization of medicine should improve equity and improve access. Because for so many patients, it's just hard for them to get to a place like ours. And let's say they need to see a specialized, you know, liver doctor or cancer doctor, but they live four hours away or, or whatever the ability of delivering those services through their phone and through telemedicine or through other kinds of digital connections, you know, the incremental cost of getting them good wireless and getting them a phone seems pretty small compared to the benefit for them and for society of providing them digital access to services they otherwise wouldn't have access to. So I think it's going to be a really important part of digital transformation to be very intentional about access issues and about equity issues as we go forward. And I feel with the digital costs of getting everybody more have access to digital, I feel like it's getting, the cost is going to get lower and lower as more people using it feels it like. should. You know, I, my wife who writes for the New York Times wrote the first article that brought scribes to national attention. Mm -hmm. And the reason she wrote that, that article was I came home one day and I said, honey, do you know how every industry digitizes and immediately starts laying off employees? 
Only in healthcare could we digitize and now have to add an extra person to the exam room to basically <laughs> feed the computer so the doctor can talk to the patient and make eye contact. So it, it was sort of healthcare's unique way of digitizing and not sort of saving money is, uh, is, is sort of a unique attribute of healthcare. But ultimately, I think as we figure this out, it seems highly likely to me that we will figure out, you know, what are the tasks that right now we have nurses or doctors doing that really they shouldn't be doing? They, you mm-hmm. know, uh, what are we, what are the, I mean, when patients are trying to make an appointment to see their doctor, they have to do stuff in healthcare that they don't have to do in right. every other industry they interact with. They're, you know, they're a plane reservation, a restaurant reservation, everything else is completely an online experience. And in healthcare, we make them call a call center and wait right. on hold and all that kind of, it's craziness. Yeah. So it, uh, and we've got a whole bunch of people that are doing that and doing prior authorizations and are doing all this silly stuff that you can imagine, you know, and you don't have to imagine it. We see it in every other part of our life, digital systems taking those things over. And I don't think it's going to mean that nurses and doctors are going to lose their jobs. It's going to mean that they can focus on what they're uniquely good at and the mm-hmm. digital can't do. Well, right. and I, so I think we're going to end up in a much better and more hopeful place, but certainly the first 10 years have been pretty bumpy. Yeah. No, well, you know, you, you, talk, you talk about that but on your book, The Digital Doctor, right? And how everybody think about the computer. It's just, you know, everybody focus on the computer, but not really uh, on a patient. But I think it's because the machine maybe is clunky. The user interface is clunky, but I think we do get better. Yes. And, you know, I... I'm I'm a fan of Eric Brynjolfsson, uh, uh, who's now at Stanford, who was at MIT when he, when he started this work. But of, of Eric and others, uh, Andy Mack, they studied the digital transformation of industries. And what they came up with, Eric's uh, 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 epiphany, I think, was 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 what he called the 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 productivity paradox of IT. And the productivity paradox was IT always comes in with massive amounts of hype. It's going to be great. It's going to transform everything. It's going to improve quality and efficiency. And in almost every industry, the first several years are bumpy and, nice. and, and you don't achieve the promised gains. And it usually takes about 10 years to see what you thought was going to happen in year one, that, that, that digital really does transform the industry in a, in a very positive way. And the point that he and others have made is that two things had to happen. One is the technology needed to get better because version 1.0 is always, was always clunky. The second, which turned out to be more important, is what he called that people have to rethink the work, reimagine the work. And the reason for that is, Amer- is, is, that, is that people are, are, are not all that imaginative and they can't envision how to transform their work in a digital environment until they're in a digital environment. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is an old problem in technology. Henry Ford was reputed to have said, if I asked people what they wanted, they would have said faster horses. <laughs> they had absolutely no ability to think about what a car could do for them until there were cars. And obviously that was Steve Jobs' genius right. too. And so, so th- this idea of reimagining the work is that when we begin digitizing, we almost always just digitize the paper process. And it's, and it's almost always not the right way to do it, but we can't think of another way. And so it takes, on average, a decade to think about, like, why are we doing this this way? Like, we could do this in an entirely different way digitally. Now, in healthcare, it's not going to be 10 years. It'll be 20. Mm-hmm. And the reason is the stakes are higher. So fail fast sounds fine with a restaurant app, but it doesn't work in healthcare when we kill people. Um, the incumbents are very powerful. As I, when I advise digital companies, 
I tell them, you know, sure, you had a really good experience in this other industry, but I can tell you that physicians are much better lobbyists than taxi cab drivers. <laughs> um, and, you know, it's a really complex industry. It's highly regulated, in some ways appropriately so. So it's going to be harder. And I suspect it's a 20-year journey. And I think, I think of us as being about 10 years into it now. Mm-hmm. So I think the next five or 10 years are going to be very exciting. Uh, but yeah, the, those early stages were largely just to digitize the, the, the data and begin to do very simple things with it. But the next five or 10 years really will be building ways that patients can do things themselves that they couldn't do before, uh, providing com- uh, computerized decision support in ways that really do help doctors like me take care of patients better. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, going through a lot of these clunky processes, prior authorization, scheduling, communicating with patients and digitizing all those things rather than, you know, having a thousand FTEs doing that now. And I think that will get catalyzed a little bit by COVID in part because we've realized not only is it too expensive to be hiring bodies for all these things, but we actually can't find bodies anymore. Mm -hmm. I mean, the labor shortage is very real. And I think that's going to force a lot of the digital transformation that was going along much, much too slowly. And I think also changed the workforce landscape as well. I think I read somewhere in the article about how everybody's always afraid that robot is going to take over the labor, but actually it creates more jobs and it actually increased by uh, quite a bit of percentage in terms of the, the job increase for the company when they implement robot. It's just shift the work. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I hope it doesn't ultimately, you know, I mean, because ultimately it's got to save money too. I mean, we're but, just, you know, I mean, I mean, we like being an employment industry, but at some point that employment is coming out of people's paychecks and coming out Mm -hmm. of tax dollars and coming out of businesses. And so, you know, but it will definitely shift the work. Mm -hmm. And what usually does not happen, particularly in complex human industries like healthcare, is that you just get rid of all the people. I mean, robotics can help you do certain tasks and augment the ability of the surgeon, for example, to do what he or she is doing. But you're still going to need a surgeon, and right. um, and you know I, I think I, I'm not worried about healthcare's employment. Uh, yeah, huge amounts of unemployment for doctors and nurses anytime in my clinical lifetime. Mm-hmm. Um, what I am worried about is the cost of healthcare, and I think a lot of the cost of healthcare is human beings doing stuff that's just silly mm-hmm. and could easily be done by effective digital systems and by AI. And that that won't lead to the human beings being fired in most cases. Uh, although, you know, some of the people that are doing some of these clerical tasks, there may not be roles for them, but I mm-hmm. expect there'll be other things to do. But what it will do is free up very highly trained prof- and expensive professionals right. to do things that they're uniquely qualified to do and right. take off their plates than things that really they don't need to be doing. Right. I think that is how a lot of other industries doing it, is that when you improve your process, then it freed up the time and the brain capacity of the uh, the person to think something more strategic. I think that's and right. That is, um, I know we are short on time, but I um, there's so much I can ask you about and talk about. I really barely touch on the, about the COVID, but I do want to uh, ask you a little bit because I'm curious uh, about the company that you advi- you're one of the advisors, Comure. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was really interesting if you can tell us more about it what's behind it, what's the concept, and what's it they're, they're trying to solve? Yeah, I, it's, it was, I've had a fun journey with them in part because uh, I first met, uh, met Hemant Taneja, who's one of the principals of General Catalyst, maybe five or six years ago. And he's one of the smartest people I've ever met. 
And he basically came to me and said, I want to learn about healthcare. I just want to learn how it works. So I, I took him on rounds at UCSF and, you know, got him to introduce him to a bunch of people. And like every smart person who comes into healthcare from other industries, you know, he was like shaking his head, couldn't believe <laughs> how dysfunctional our systems were, you know, how, how many smart, effective people were spent, you know, chasing their tail, doing kind of dumb things that could be improved technologically. I think the epiphany that he and others had with Commure was that ultimately interoperability was going to be crucial. It was going to be, and, and, and the idea that your electronic health record um, had to be, had to morph over time from, from the be all and end all to, you know, the thing that not only is collecting the data and moving it around in fairly simple ways, but is the way you do everything it would have to morph into a much more dynamic and, 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 and nuanced world where, yes, you have this big enterprise system, but there are a whole lot of other apps and products that are built to solve specific problems that have to bolt into it seamlessly to allow you to use those new tools while still the EHR, the electronic health record, is sort of the underlying foundational piece. And I think his suspicion, and I think borne out, was that the federal government would try to regulate that and make it easier for there to be plug and play with third-party products. But the electronic health record companies would probably fight it to some extent because their business model was really dependent on you believing that they would do everything for you. And that if ultimately there could be technological solutions that allowed for you to have a tool that plugged into your EHR and then allowed it, made it easier for you to have an app store-like environment, that ultimately your ability to solve clinical and business problems in healthcare would be better. So that's what they have been working on for a number of years. I think they've achieved a lot of that. They're doing work in a number of big healthcare systems. And I, I believe in that vision. I really have mm-hmm. come to believe that, you know, I mean, it's, it's sort of easy for people to moan about Epic and Cerner and the big electronic health record companies. I think they, you know, they were there when we needed right. a, a big enterprise product uh, to come in and solve, and it solved a whole lot of problems. But to go forward and to make progress here, I don't believe that any one big company, whether it's Epic or Cerner or Google or Amazon, is going to figure or Apple is going to figure this out. I think a lot of the solutions are going to be more entrepreneurial, small companies that say, "I want to improve the way we communicate with patients after their lung transplant. Mm-hmm. I want to improve the way that patients with diabetes can manage their own illness," and you name it. And so, but you can't have, you know, patients having to sign on to 37 different tools and you can't have a healthcare delivery system where those tools and that digital work is happening independent of the enterprise system. So it all has to get bolted together into something coherent. And the only reason we know what that looks like is our iPhones. We sort of know what an app store looks like. We know what it looks like when there's sort of a core piece of software and hardware and that everything that bolts into it to solve specific problems just plays perfectly mm-hmm. with it. And you don't have to worry about it. So I think Camura is designed to try to make that, to try to create that environment in healthcare. And I think it's an important vision. And I'm impressed by what they've done so far. Mm-hmm. No, I think it's really interesting. I, I, like to your point, uh, a lot of the innovation that changed a lot of the things are coming from the startup. Like how... Amazon came a long time ago with a startup, how it changed how we shop and do a lot of the cloud system now. That's all this kind of good stuff. So I think it's um, that's why we are so passionate about supporting a lot of the startup, the innovation, because we think that's where 
a lot. I of- think I, I am grateful for it, and I think you're right. And I, I've come to believe that the answer is going to be and not or. That there are, you know, healthcare is big enough and complex enough and messed up enough that there will be, I don't think Epic or Cerner are going out of business anytime soon. No. I think there will be a role for the Googles and the Amazons and the Microsofts and the Apples. But I think that as you look at all of those big companies, they've all struggled in healthcare because healthcare is so complicated that, that in many ways, your best shot is to be a company that was built to solve a certain much more narrow problem. And the problem there, of course, is integration. The problem there is you just can't have a world where, you know, their their patients are using right. 20 or 30 different tools and it's not woven together in a way that's coherent because the patients often have five different problems. And if uh, and, and assuming that they still are connecting with a doctor in a healthcare system, all of that, all of those tools have to seamlessly blend in with the enterprise system that, 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 that the healthcare system is using. So it's a really naughty problem, but looking at last several years of the experience with IBM and Google Health. You know, all these companies tried healthcare 20 years ago, got their rear ends kicked, left healthcare, said, and then came back five years ago and said, we're much smarter about it. We're in it for the long game. We're much they more got kicked. And they're still getting kicked I mean, because it is really, really hard. And so, you know, I think they will have a role, but I, I if I had to put my nickel down, it would be on these startups, you know, and obviously many of them will fail, but mm-hmm. some of them that are smart and are well capitalized, you know, focusing on really thoughtfully focusing on solving smaller bite-sized problems with a with enough clinical advice to be sure that they're being realistic about how to do it, but with competencies that they bring from other industries. Those are the ones that I'm most excited about. Yeah, and I think it's, and then you build it up from there. Like when you remember thinking about Amazon, they started from just selling books. Right. 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 I, I think I think sometimes when I see a lot of the huge company, they want to make a huge impact. So they started big and it just becomes so messy very quickly. And the startup, they lack resources. So they have to work on something specific. Yeah. And then they grow from there. I think that's um but I know we are short like we ran out of time. I feel like I could talk to you all day to hear a lot of your insight. So Thank you so much for your time and really enjoy our learning from you. My pleasure. It was was great fun. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Health Technology Podcast. We want to thank our executive producer, Herminio Neto, and our podcast engineer, Andrew Rojek. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe and leave a review. The Health Technology Podcast is available on all major platforms.